0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue Dr. Newfeld's series, "Why Follow Jesus?" with a message titled "Faithful Until Death." So, turning your Bibles with me to John six sixty four to seventy one, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: There are, as I can see it, three distinctly different styles of parenting. You know, one style is to give the kids anything they want. I mean, essentially, this style of parenting is motivated either by fear or by a lack of love. When it's motivated by fear, it's a fear that if the parents don't give in to the kids, the kids might withdraw their love. So, these parents are afraid of their children's anger and, in response, seek to keep things as happy as possible. But, of course, there are parents who are permissive who really just don't want their kids to get in their way and they have the means to let the kids have anything they want, and hopefully, the kids will just get what they want and stop bugging their parents. But either way, either because of fear or because of neglect, the results are the same. Kids grow up to be spoiled brats who have a sense of entitlement and who never heard the word no. A second style of parenting is the parent who is overly harsh. They're aware of the reality of the spoiled and entitled child, and so in consequence, the parents are extreme disciplinarians. But this second style of parenting also lacks love. You know, the disciplinarian parent may not care about the good of their child at all. You know, all they care about is making the child in their own image or imposing an image on the child that, you know, might be harmful. Many are the scarred children who know discipline but not love. A third style of parenting is the parent who knows both discipline and love. I meet people who had parents like that all the time. You know, he or she will say, you know, my parents were strong and they were even demanding... But the love and kindness that came from their strong hands has molded my life. And the older I get, the more I see their wisdom and the willingness to sacrifice all for my good. Now, might I say that, you know, many people do church in just one of those three ways. There are and always will be the harsh and demanding preacher who, you know, looks like a prophet in the pulpit, but who's distant and unapproachable. On the other hand, there are those preachers who have championed the seeker-sensitive approach. Find out what the people need and want and give it to them. Tell them that they can have their best life now, that they should focus on their dreams and plans, and just know this, God is for you, they say. He'll help you achieve all your plans. Here now are the principles God has put in place to help you to be the best that you want to be. Now I'll say all of this because there is something at the end of John chapter 6 that makes me think about this scenario. So let's read our text, John 6, 64-71. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You know, this section at the end of John 6 is the conclusion of a rather long and dramatic chapter. The chapter begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000 through an extraordinary miracle, but that miracle becomes the reason for a great deal of disagreement between Jesus and the crowd. And the crowd's looking for Jesus to keep doing this, and Jesus is looking for the crowd to understand that the miracle was a sign pointing to a more substantial reality— Instead of looking for temporal things, they, they should be hungering for eternal things. And instead of seeing Jesus as their meal ticket, well, they should feed on Jesus and entrust themselves fully into His hands you know, for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The last section in John 6 begins with the upshot of this disagreement. Many of the crowds have just had enough. They're no longer going to follow Him. And Jesus already knows this, and so he says, there are some of you who do not believe. And then John adds his own words, for Jesus already knew from the beginning those who did not believe. It's a curious thing to say. I want to ask John, what do you mean from the beginning? I mean, do you mean from the beginning of this event, that is, from the previous day when you fed the 5,000, that then you already knew which ones would not believe, or did you mean it? In the way that you use the words in the beginning from the very first verse in your book. Remember, John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, did you mean from the very beginning, before you created the world, Jesus already knew all about this crowd and who would turn from him? Now, I know that John doesn't explain himself, but I have a sneaking suspicion he means from the beginning of the world. And if I have that right, this this explains why Jesus is not panicked at the response of this great crowd. That's because verses 65 to 66 tell us, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, Jesus has been deeply confident that 100% of those whom the Father draws will come to him, and that when a great crowd of people abandoned him and his crowds got smaller, he's not overwhelmed with that thought. Indeed, when verse 66 says that many of his disciples turned back, it means they went back to the things that they had left behind. I mean, they went back to their former way of thinking, to their beliefs about what was true and what was important in life. and to the things that consumed their lives before they had ever met him. In fact, verse 66 makes it clear that at this point, these would-be disciples abandoned Jesus decisively. And verse 65 to 66 tells us why Jesus did absolutely nothing to remove the offense that he had created. I find this fascinating because as you and I know, one of the greatest temptations that all pastors struggle with, and indeed lay leaders as well, is to adapt the message and adapt the gospel to the changing times in which we live so that we can keep as many people as we possibly can. And this is all around us. And you know, I recently got a letter from a very articulate and thoughtful friend. Now, I know him to be a man not given to exaggeration. And he told me that in about 25 years, he had not heard a sermon on either the second coming or about hell. You know, since he was an older man, he also told me that He had not heard a sermon on hell since he said 1958, a sermon that he remembered quite vividly. Well, truth be told, whenever someone says to me, we don't need any more hellfire and brimstone sermons, I really have two responses. You know, the first is to ask, when was the last time you actually heard a sermon on hellfire and brimstone? And in most cases, well, they've never heard one. And my second response is this, if I were to faithfully preach through the text of scripture and the scripture in question, had hell as its subject matter, well, what should I do? Should I avoid that because it offends people? Uh, should we actually do what so many are doing? Find a hurt and heal it, or find a need and fill it? Or, or should we determine that the revelation of God in Scripture should form the basis of what we teach? Should we be relevant and timely and up-to-date, or should we be truthful about the truths that have been once for all given to the saints? See, the answer to these very important questions are being worked out in every single church in our land and in the world right now. The liberal experiment of the last century in which liberals said, look, we don't preach that the Bible is literally true. We can't expect people to believe in miracles or in indwelling sin and in the need of a savior. We need to find ways of reinventing the gospel. We need to make it more attractive to post-enlightenment thinking, and that was the experiment of liberalism. And the response has been that the liberals didn't reach the crowds either. In fact, liberal churches have almost all imploded. But along came some evangelicals who really did the same thing, perhaps with a different twist. You know, a new breed of evangelicals said, look, we believe in miracles. We, we believe that the Bible is literally true, but... We're just not going to touch on those parts of the Scripture that are more offensive to the wider culture. And we certainly aren't going to preach sermons on the great doctrinal truths of the Christian faith because people don't think in terms of doctrine, and people are only asking questions of immediate application to their lives. And so the pulpits fell silent on things like the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the Incarnation the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the totality of sin in every part of our humanity, the truth that without grace we're lost, the nature of our Savior, and what Jesus came to do and to accomplish, and a Jesus who satisfies the righteousness of God on the cross. You see, many stopped preaching about this because they were afraid that the crowd would leave them. Well, I'm gonna say that the crowd wouldn't have left them But that's what we find in this text. Now Jesus is not going to adapt his message to make sure the crowd stays.
0: Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the message of hope found in Jesus Christ. Jesus came with the grace of forgiveness and the truth which transforms and your support enables Back to the Bible Canada to sow this biblical truth in a spiritual famine. By your prayers and generosity, God's Word grants light and life to families under stress, seniors isolated in apartments, truckers alone on the road, unbelievers whose hearts and minds are in turmoil. Now the month of December marks year end for charitable donations. This year, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are looking to raise $517,000 to reach our year-end budget. We hope you'll stand with us with your year-end gifts. This goal has been set not as an achievement, but as preparation and promise. To give your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: After many would-be disciples abandoned Jesus, John 6:67 6, says, So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now, the Greek language from which we get our English translation, so, it actually constructs this sentence as to leave no doubt that the question demands a negative response. See, Jesus said it in such a way in which he fully expected the answer to be no. We will not go away as well. And that is, as Don Carson said it well, he says, the question is not moody or glum, wondering how bad things were now going to become. Instead, Jesus is saying, surely you don't want to go away too, do you now? And Jesus is certain that the response will be exactly what he receives. Of course, one reason he is certain is because, you know, John has already told us that Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe and who would not. Well, it's important here to to stop for a moment and interject that none of us today knows that. Jesus, he did know that because, well, he's always existed and because he knows all things. He is God incarnate. We're not. We don't know these things. It's important that no believer today make a statement about who is and who is not in the Lamb's book of life. But there's another important reason why Jesus asks this question. He does so because he knows that it's essential that the 12 must articulate their response. Faith, when it is true faith, is never kept on the inside. It's necessary that it is stated externally. You know, for instance, when I lead someone to Christ, I want him or her to articulate his or her faith. You know, I might ask, if you were to die tonight and were to stand before God, on what basis do you think you're going to go to heaven? Now, if the person in question still doesn't answer, Jesus Christ lived and died for them, I know I have to go over the same ground again. I know they want to believe. I just wanna make sure they truly believe. So, and you, if you lead someone to Christ, I would argue you should do the same. Don't just get them to repeat the prayer you're praying. I mean, when that's done, ask them, on what are you basing your confidence before God? And if they say, I've just prayed the prayer to ask Jesus into my life, then you need to go over the matter with them again. Our confidence is not in the prayers we pray. Our confidence is in the one who bled and died for us. It was not long after this event that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And there in a place surrounded by pagan temples and the dark spirituality of those who are lost in sin, Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? And he he demands that they articulate the options. And then who do you say that I am? You tell me. And we'll remember that Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, when in John chapter 6, when we hear Jesus demanding his disciples articulate their faith, he asks them if they want to leave. And Peter, because he's a leader of the 12, answers for all of them. Notice his answer is not in the singular, it's in the plural. Verses 68 and 69 says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, let's take Peter's answer one step at a time. First, he states a basic truth. You know, if he'd been looking for a higher ethic, a better way of living, well, there are options out there. And if he'd been looking for political solutions to the problems of his day, well, there were also options. I mean, after all, one of the 12, a man named Simon, had been a zealot. You know, essentially, I I suppose we can say that the zealots were terrorists. They, They were looking for ways of attacking the Romans and inflicting casualties against them until it became too costly for the Romans to remain in Israel. See, that's one option. There might have been other options to the Roman problem. And so, if the disciples had been looking for money or power or political advantage or even a happy and meaningful existence in this life, there were alternative options. Indeed, if they were looking for a more meaningful spiritual experience, the world is also full of those options. That's not what Peter says. The reason he and the others believe that they have nowhere else to go is because they're looking for eternal life. This is so important for us today. You know, sometimes I hear people trumpeting the local church. They'll say, You know, it's positive, it's upbeat, it's casual, and it's professional, and it removes the cringe factor, and on and on go the reasons for coming to church. By the way, I, I don't think that there's any excuse for a lack of excellence in our worship services. But if your goal is to entertain or to lift human spirits, listen, there are other places where people can go. There are options. But Peter and the others aren't looking for that. They're looking for eternal life. And when it comes to eternal life, there are simply no other options. Look, I know that when Peter said these words, Jesus had not yet been raised from the dead. But now, for us, he has. Jesus is the only human being in all of world history who has ever been raised from the dead with an undying and indestructible body. I know, Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again. But if you're looking for eternal and undying life, there are no other options on earth. See, don't you see? Whether or not you stay with Jesus all depends on what you're looking for. I know there are people that are looking for healing and blessing and prosperity and to have their best life now. And if this is what you want, you might choose Jesus, but there are options. But if you would sacrifice all that you have for eternal life, there are no other options. You might be suffering today, you might be persecuted, you might be poor and in need. And if you think eternal life is the highest good, you have nowhere else to go. And Peter still has one more thing to say. See, Peter knows that Jesus is the only one who offers eternal life because he says to him, we have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. It is difficult here to establish with precision what Peter actually meant by those words. You know, that title, a Holy One of God, occurs in only two other places in the New Testament. It occurs in Mark 1:24 and in Luke 4:34, and both of those occurrences refer to the very same incident. Luke tells us that Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum, and, and there was on that day a man with a demon. And as the demon sees Jesus, Luke tells us, the demon cried out and said, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It seems quite likely that the demons are in confusion. They know that when the Messiah comes, he will destroy them. And yet, they also observe that Jesus has come and is treating sinners tenderly. And at least to their observation, the kingdom of God is coming in an unexpected way. And so they naturally want to know, is this the hour of their destruction? I mean, have you come to destroy us? That brings us back to the title, the Holy One of God. You know, it's clear that that's a title for the Messiah. But because the title holy is attached to Jesus, it seems to me that Peter not only knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but that Jesus is without sin, and what he is faithfully portrays all that the Father is. That's an insight, and indeed, it's an extraordinary insight. He reminds us that Jesus would later say that this insight did not come from them, it came from a revelation from the Father. Here's the question. Why, after Peter says this, does Jesus respond so harshly? I mean, again, in verse 70, he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? I think that Jesus responded this way to take away any thought that there's something praiseworthy in the disciples. Unlike what we might say, Jesus did not say, Hey, you guys really are impressive. You have a keen insight into what really matters. Unlike everyone else, you guys know that eternal life is the most important thing. No, Jesus would never allow his disciples to have such an impression, and neither would he allow us that kind of a deceit. You didn't come to the conclusion you did for any other reason than that the Father has had mercy on you. And at the same time, Jesus is not for a moment giving the impression that he does not know the dark and ugly, unrepentant heart of Judas. It must have been shocking for the other eleven to hear it. It must have been very unsettling for Judas as well, but he remains silent. You know, John chapter 6 is the story of why some abandon Jesus and why others will be faithful unto death. You know, in our day, I'm I'm constantly hearing of statistics that say that up to 75% of our young people are abandoning the faith. And I also hear of others who doubt and others who simply embrace a different lifestyle and others who argue that the Christian view of sexuality is too restrictive and so it's unable to respond to the present morality. Well, my response is shaped by the material in this chapter. What is it that you want from Jesus? See, I believe that eternal life is the most precious thing that anyone can possess. To have life for your soul, to have escaped the judgment of God, to have been forgiven, to no longer fear death, to be liberated, to a life of love and peace of hope, to know God intimately, to be assured that your best days are always ahead. For us, it is never going from bad to worse. Peter asks a fundamental question. Where else will I go? And if you want what Peter wanted, well, then you're going to want to cling to Jesus. He alone has the words of eternal life.
0: John, after your message, I'm thinking, you know, it's difficult to compare or even uh, make comparisons with other religions in Christianity because what Christ is offering is, is completely absent in other faiths. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes people take offense. You
1: know, you guys claim that Only Jesus can forgive your sins. Well, let's take Hinduism as an example, or or Buddhism. They speak about karma. Karma and sin are entirely different concepts. Um, Sin is about violating the law of God. And, And salvation is offered to individuals who have offended an altogether righteous God. There are a lot of religions in this world that have no concept of that at all. They're not asking the same questions that the Christian faith is asking. How do I get on with a righteous God? And therefore they're not answering any of those questions. So they're talking about different things. So I think it's, it's fair to say only Jesus gives eternal
0: life. There's no one else that even offers it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent His Son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The Father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas, we run to it. That's our prayer for you this season. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas, Jesus has come, and He remains Emmanuel despite difficult days.